Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the cross. And I thank you so much, Lord, for just this opportunity, Father. We thank you for your word, Lord. God, it is an honor to, to preach and share your word because it is so easy because your word speaks for itself, Lord. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in everything today. I pray you'd hide me behind your cross. I pray, Lord, that that you would bring salvation today, Father. God, thank you for all that you've done in our lives and being so good, so mighty, and so merciful. In your son's name, pray. Amen. So first of all, I want to thank uh, Pastor Michael and Pastor John for this opportunity. Um, if y'all don't know, Pastor Michael was out partying real late to 1 a.m. last night. <laughs> or you could say he was camping in another state. Either way it goes. But, um, no, I know that I was really glad it worked out to where it did, to where I could share and also give him a, a breather. And so as well, I want to thank my wife. Where's my, where's my boo There she is. What's up, babe? Uh, she wasn't feeling well this morning. And so it's, it's funny because um, whenever I have the opportunity to preach, and I, I, the more I talk to other pastors and their wives, this is something I've realized that Generally speaking, that means Kendra's going to go through hell for the week leading up to my preaching. Like, literally, it seems like every single time I'll be preaching, life is really difficult for her. And so I really do thank her for, obviously, uh, all the stuff she does as a mom and a wife. She's pretty amazing. So we're in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. And we're going to be talking about greatness. And so one of my youth at City Life, he... uh, he loves, in fact, in my, in my cell phone, his name is The Goat, because he loves to talk about who's the greatest. Now, when we say The Goat, does anybody know what The Goat stands for? Greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, The Goat. And so, you know, he'll come in, he's a Chris Paul fan, so, you know, it's, I always make fun of him about that, but like, we're always talking about, you know, who's, who's the, the goat in basketball, just so y'all know, I like to uh, hear a response. Who's Oscar Robertson? That's right. Kobe Hakeem. Man, no one said Michael or LeBron. Goodness. All right, so uh, as well, you know, I, I like to, I love to think about, like, what's the greatest hip-hop uh, group of all time? There we go. Salt, salt and pepper, come on. Or... You know, I, even like I, I love writing. I love reading. So I think of like who's who's the greatest uh, writer of all time. There we go. Hearing a lot of stuff. I love Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is a big. I'm a big fan of his. And, it, and it's funny because we're we're in Louisville, Kentucky. And one thing Louisville's known is for a person that um, was known to reference himself as being the greatest. And who's that? Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. And so. Um, it's, it's fun to think about who is the greatest and what qualifies somebody to be the greatest. And so as we talk about this, it's interesting because we're going to read Jesus um, slowly pulling down the curtain on who really is the greatest. And so we're in John chapter 4. Now this doesn't sound that remarkable, but John chapter 4 comes after John chapter 3. And so with that, you know, we're coming right off of Nicodemus having that conversation about uh, being born again. Um, and then John the Baptist begins saying uh, that he must increase and I must decrease. And so then that leads us to where we are in this story. And so 
it's a long text, and, and we're going to actually read it as we go throughout the sermon. And so verses 1 through 6, it says, in John chapter 4, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And so the first thing we're going to see, I have five points. The first point, the first thing we see is that Jesus is greater than cultural barriers. See, this is a very loaded story for, for us and uh, for me, Mark Singleton, 2019 in America, reading this story. It has a very, very different meaning than someone who actually lived in this region and understood these relationships. And so the relationships we're really going to talk about is the relationships between Jews and Samaritans. Um, and like I said, Jesus, the first point is Jesus is greater than cultural barriers. So verse 4 tells us, it says, He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. And so as we try to understand more and more about this relationship between Jews and Samaritans, I want to read a couple things for us to understand how, how Jews viewed Samaritans. Samaritans were essentially a corrupted form of the Jewish race. The Jews who remained in the northern kingdom of Israel when the Syrians came and took them captive in 722, the Jews who remained after the population was, was removed from the land, intermarried with all kinds of pagan, idolatrous nations, and so they were a hybrid of people who had forsaken their Judaism and committed the most heinous crime that a Jew could commit, and that was to mingle with idolatrous Gentiles. They had done that. They were outcasts. And so in their day, it wasn't uncommon for a Jew to view a Samaritan and, and, and say things like, well, I have no dealings with Samaritans. If a Samaritan owns a business, I'm not going to their business. I'm not going to a Samaritan neighborhood. I'm not messing with them at all. The rifts between them, I can't give words to help us understand how divided this was. But when Jesus, when this, because it's funny because we have the, the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus tells a story about Samaritan. This is a physical, actual event where Jesus is in Samaria interacting with Samaritans, which, which shows the power behind it. And so as we understand this image, you know, it, it's so deep that some Jews actually believe that Samaritans were not created in the image of God. They believe that Samaritans weren't a full man. Now, we can understand a little bit of that type of language here in the U.S. Uh, I, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a second, but uh, it was so bad that Jews couldn't drink out of the same water as Samaritans. So think about that. They're separate water fountains. So we understand this is a huge divide. But first of all, the first barrier that Jesus broke through is he broke through a cultural barrier or a geographical barrier. Sorry. He broke a geographical barrier. So as we see, it says that he, his disciples, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. So if we had a map and we saw, and you might have on your Bible, to go from Judea to Galilee, the one place you had to go through was Samaria. And so the typical Jew in that time would have went all the way around Samaria to avoid Samaria altogether. That adds two days of journey, two days to the trip, extra, just because they didn't want to be around Samaritans. 
there was a geographical barrier between them. And, you know, as we think about this, it's funny because, you know, that's about 100 miles. And I think to myself, man, they traveled 100 miles out of the way to avoid them. And I would struggle wanting to do that in a car. This is walking. This is the Middle East. It is hot. It is, so that actually is a health problem if you're willing to do that. That's more dangerous to do that. But that's literally the amount of divide that we see between them geographically. But not, not only was this a geographical barrier, this was also a racial barrier. This was the Jewish people, God's chosen people, intermarrying. The divide between Jews and Samaritans, it wasn't anything new, but it's nothing new to us. As we'll talk throughout this sermon, you'll see that, that we can understand racial division. We see racial division in our society. Now, there's, I don't know if as much right now, but for a long time, it seemed like when we talked about racism, you know, it was something that we read in a book, a history book, and then we put the book away, and we felt like that was racism. It was a piece of history. For those of us that were born in the 70s and, and, uh, and up, we felt like racism was something associated with Martin Luther King, Ma Malcolm X, and the Civil Rights Movement. But as we see today, and I don't think many people doubt it as much today, racism is alive and well. It is an issue we have to address. And, you know, the funny thing is, as I was prepping this, I was thinking to myself, you know, Pastor Michael went in on the gospel and ethnic identity just a couple weeks ago. So there's part of me that was like, you know, we've already hit this. But then as I thought and prayed through it, I, was, I realized that if I skip this, I'm not giving the text justice. And there's a reality. We need to hear this. This was... There was a racial barrier between Jesus and this woman at this well. And Jesus didn't give a rip about this barrier. He didn't care about the cultural norms. He didn't care about the fact that, I mean, just to be real, it's interesting because he comes and it says uh, he is worn out from his journey. So I love this because we see the humanity of Jesus. He comes, he's tired. He don't care if it's a Samaritan or whoever. He needs some help to get a drink. But there is a rift here that we have to understand. And in our country, we've seen it with uh, many people groups. We've seen it with Native Americans and uh, attempts to, to abolish them completely. We see it today heavily with the Hispanic community. We see it with the Jewish community, the African American community, 400 years of rape, torture, murder, slavery, and we still feel like We've moved past all this. And it's, it's, really, it's really a hard discussion to have a lot of times, especially when you're trying to discuss it with somebody, and they're like, well, racism doesn't exist because the laws have changed. But in the same way, the laws aren't what, changed, what, what had anything to do with people's hearts. Racism is essentially a problem of the heart. It really all comes down to prejudice and partiality. And so even... With this, as I'm thinking about it, you know, that's something that I think we have to all acknowledge and deal with is the fact that all of us, if we're not careful, can have racism in our hearts. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things, it's a hard conversation because right now being labeled a racist in today's society is one of the most um, inflaming things you can say to someone. It automatically, someone gets upset. Oh, I'm not a racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. 
we'll hear that stuff, we'll say that stuff, but in the same ways, though, too, regardless of what we say, all of us are susceptible to being prejudiced. All of us are susceptible to sin. We're susceptible to being partial. And unless we're willing to consistently bathe ourselves in the word and consistently look in the mirror and check our hearts, racism isn't something that any of us are too good to be. And so I think that that's something we have to think through. Right here, Jesus was willing to step past this racial barrier. Maybe today that's your struggle. Maybe you look down on races that are different than yours. You know, it's hard because as we talk about this, automatically people want to, we get so angry by the idea of someone being racist, but the problem is racism existing. We need to have space where we can repent, confess, and work through this stuff. A lot of us, all of us, myself included, has racism we have to deal with. I have prejudice I have to deal with. Misconceptions. This is stuff I have to deal with daily and work through and make sure that I'm in the, in the word, make sure that I'm having conversations with, with my wife, making sure that I'm consistently processing this stuff. Because if I'm not, then all of a sudden I'll be making decisions. And even though I'll never say that I'm a racist, you'll see my prejudice You'll see my partiality towards different people groups in my actions. We've got to deal with this stuff. We've got to look in the mirror constantly. I invite you today, friend, to recognize the grace of God. As you work throughout all these cultural barriers, recognize the cross that bore your sins and lay your sin at the feet of Jesus. And so we talked about a geographical barrier, a racial barrier. There's also a religious barrier. So initially, when I thought of Jews and Samaritans, I was pretty ignorant of the, the subject for a while until studying this. And so I thought of it almost like uh, denominational differences. And so I thought, you know, this is like the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians, you know, like, while we got some of our differences, we still have a core of things that we can agree upon, and we're still on the same team for the most part. Like, I, I thought that's what it was, but... As I studied, I saw this wasn't just simply us having a, a slight theological difference. This was a heretical difference to the Jews. They looked at Samaritans as being in contradiction to the word of God. Some scholars actually said that Samaritans had a low view of the Torah, which for a Jew would automatically, would automatically say they're not brothers. Yet here's Jesus in Samaria. We're going to see he's having a conversation with a woman about theology. It's unreal. It's beautiful. Samaritans and Jews didn't conversate, more or less, on theological matters. And the hard thing about this is that sometimes, if I'm honest, I can want to gravitate towards people that agree with me on everything. And in our society, this is, this is a hard thing, is that whenever we find someone that disagrees with us on a subject, we, we automatically want to push them away some and, and build a wall. But in the same way, there couldn't be any more polar opposites of Jesus and this woman. We see right here that she is so far off of where he is, but in the same way, he engages her. And we're going to see how beautiful it is. He, he makes himself vulnerable to her. In fact, he gives her privileges that no other people had ever experienced up to that point. And so I challenge you, church, I challenge us. How many friends do we have that weren't able to engage in conversation with lovingly, even though we might disagree with them on issues of sexuality, 
issues of race, it's politics. I'm sorry, just politics right now is just, oh, I can't even deal with that. But, I mean, honestly, how much are we willing to have these conversations and to lovingly engage people? Right now with, you know, America's a melting pot and we have so much division right now over so many different issues. Wouldn't it be an amazing testimony to a watching world to see Christians that are lovingly pursuing and engaging people that obviously have very different belief systems in them? That's what we should be known for. Not the extremist people that hold signs and uh, protest funerals. We should be known for pursuing and loving people. And so there's a religious barrier. And lastly, there's a gender barrier. This is a woman. And their day for a Jewish man to talk, be talking with a woman at all, more or less a Samaritan. Just the fact that he's talking to a woman, having this conversation, we'll see in just a little bit how the disciples reacted. It was scandalous. Like, Jesus, this ain't what we do. Like, his, his disciples, who were young guns that didn't know much, they at least knew that you don't, you don't talk to a woman by yourself in a situation like that, Jesus. Stop. She's, yeah, just, just she's probably got issues. She's probably got baggage. And people are going to start thinking things about you. And she had a bad reputation. We see that because... Um, let's see, right here it says that she came out to the well at noon in the heat of the day. So yesterday I had to mow a couple lines. And so mowing lines, what time do you think I preferred to go out to mow lines? In the morning early, right? The last time you would catch me outside trying to start mowing a lawn is at noon, and I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I can't imagine what it's like when you're in the Middle East going out to a well at noon to get water. She was out there because she had a bad reputation. You see, there's a lot of stuff in here that we have to understand that in his, rela in his interaction with her that's important. But I think the fact that she's a woman is a big thing that we miss Today in our world, there's a lot of issues on gender, the ways that we understand gender, the conversations about gender at all. And it's hard because as Christians, we're trying to, to you know, we want to stay faithful here, but we have one side of people that's completely saying that gender doesn't even exist. And we, we see biblically we can't agree there, but then we have another side of people that view women as being just half-citizens, as not being capable, as not having full access to the kingdom of God. And that is why it's so important that we, we stay ingrained in the word of God. Because, I mean, how many of us, I mean, I think to myself, if I'm honest, and the fact that even like, I, when we were having kids, my initial thought was, man, I really hope for a son. Now, of course, maybe that's part of being a man, hoping for a son and everything. But in the same token, though, too, as soon as my daughter was born, of course, I was in love with her. But then, you know, I, I had to start thinking to myself, man, what could God do with her life? What if she became the next Elizabeth Elliot or, or Corey Ten Boom? Or actually, I was standing in the back during worship, and I saw, uh, I saw Lee, and they were looking at uh, Phyllis Wheatley. 
And I started thinking about Harry Tubman, just all these different figures throughout history. And a lot of times we, we, we look at our women and we don't give them opportunities to, to get to serve God faithfully. This was a real barrier right here on gender. And Jesus didn't care. That's the thing. That's the most important thing I want us to understand is that in spite of all this stuff, all this baggage, he didn't care at all about it. And so um, that was all intro. Now we're actually going to get into the story. But I, I think it's, it's so important that we understand this because as we see this conversation, now understand the power behind every single interaction throughout this, this, uh, this conversation. Let's start at verse 7. It says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him. He would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Whoever drinks from the water that I will give, you, give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So that brings us to point two. With Jesus, you'll never thirst again. With Jesus, you'll never thirst again. So Jesus and the woman begin discussing a need, a physical need. They begin discussing water. Like I said, for Jews to drink water given to them by Samaritans, it would have been actually breaking a law. I mean, that's how, that's, that's the type of divide we're talking about. That's why she's shocked that he's, pursuing her at all, that he's having an interaction with her. I want to ask us, though, friends, do you believe that Jesus gives water that will cause you to never thirst again? Think about that. Is the water that he's given satisfying to your life? Another way to put it, does Jesus satisfy you? I know it's easy to say it's just me and Jesus, all I got is Jesus, but, but honestly think about that. Is he enough for you? If your child dies, is he enough? If you lose your job, is he enough? I think all of us have that one thing that we think about, as long as this one thing doesn't happen, I think I'm going to be fine. Well, if that one thing happens, if your spouse leaves you, whatever it is, is he enough? With Jesus, you'll never thirst again. Look over at your neighbor and say, you'll never thirst again. So first, Jesus is greater than cultural barriers. Second, with Jesus, you'll never thirst again. Third, Jesus knows you and desires you to know him. Jesus knows you and desires you to know him, verses 16 to 18. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she said, she answered. You correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. 
So uh, Jesus isn't going for brownie points here, obviously. You know, he's, he, automatically, this is humiliating. This is embarrassing. Yet there's something very, very powerful here. In verse 29, after they talk and she leaves, the, so verse 29, she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. So think about that. Obviously, this is like a three to four minute conversation. Did Jesus tell her everything she ever did? No, he did not. Let's just clear the air. He did not, t- he did not list her every single thing that she ever did in her life. But there's, there's something powerful right here because what he does is he exposes her on the deepest level. He takes all the baggage, all the skeletons, he brings them out and says, hey, you know what? You ain't got to front nothing. I see everything and know everything about you. And guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't walk away. He exposes her. He pulls everything out and he says, I am here. I know this about you, but it doesn't change our relationship. Think about that. And not only, it's, it's beautiful because he exposes her, he isn't walking away, he's still talking with her. And a lot of times when we think about that, we don't think about the fact that that's us. He knows you. He knows your closet. Listen, hey, married folks, he knows about the dumb arguments y'all get into, about who ate the toast. He knows about all the stupid stuff. He knows about the times you throw something, the times that you get mad at each other, the, the, the words that have flown that you're embarrassed about. We ain't got a front with him. We can be honest because he knows us and it's okay. He didn't save us because we have it together. He saved us in, in spite of how jacked up we are. He saved us because he's good and gracious. And because of that, when we come to him, there's got to be a vulnerability of realizing, you know what? I'm with you in, because of the fact that you know me and you don't care. It doesn't change our relationship. And, that, and, and I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that our sin doesn't hurt, but what I'm getting at more so is the fact that in spite of sin, he chooses to love us. He knows the shame that our sin brings. He knows the embarrassment that it causes us. That's a beautiful thing. This is God with us, Jesus. He lived on earth. He walked with us, and he saw how painful life can be. He knows us, and take comfort in that. He knows you, and he's not leaving. He's not walking away. In the next passage from verses 19 to 24, the woman tries to to change the subject a little bit. Sir, the woman replies. So, so he pulls the he pulls the skeletons out of the closet, and this is. I mean, I would have done the same thing. He's like, "Hey, remember when you were sleeping with all those guys?" And she's like, "Well, um, how about I see that you're a prophet? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem." Jesus told her, "Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know." We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. When hours coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so she tries to change the subject on some theological stuff. It's one of those things, it's almost like Jesus is like, well, I'm going to respond to that. He responds, but then he's like, I got something bigger for you, though. We're not going to stop at this theological question. You got to understand who I am. And that brings us to our fourth point. Jesus is who you've been waiting for. 
Jesus is who you've been waiting for. Verses 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. And so we got to take all this in account. This is John chapter 4. This is early. Jesus' ministry is fresh. He just got started. Later on, John chapter 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, and Jewish leaders tried to murder him on the spot. John 18, 6, when Jesus said, I am he, whenever they were coming to arrest him, his captors drew back and fell to the ground. So there's something about this I am statement that we got to figure out. And what we understand is not just, he's not just saying that he's the person they're asking for, it's something deeper. This woman right here, and this is, this is what I love, is that this Samaritan woman who's, who's been living in adultery is the first person recorded that Jesus announced himself to. Not only is he saying, I know who you are, he's saying, you're about to find out who I am. He reveals her secrets, and soon she finds out his big secret. The woman hears him, affirm that he's a Messiah, and then here's the, here's the dope thing about it, verse 28. The woman left her water jar. Just stop right there. The woman left her water jar and went into town. Where is she at? She's at a well. It is hot. She's fetching water. She finds out that he says, I am he. She leaves the water jar and takes off. Because all of that quit mattering. It didn't matter anymore because all of a sudden she realized the gravity of the situation. I'm not just talking to a man. I'm, just talk, I'm not just talking to a prophet. There's something, this guy has something special. And then when he said, I am he, she knew automatically he's saying he's the Messiah. It's powerful. But then also, his statement of being I am he is not just about being the Messiah. In Exodus 3, God reveals his name as being I am. So when he says, I am he, with the literal translation being I am, she knew what he was saying. She was saying, he was saying, I'm God. And that's why she left the water jar, because all of a sudden she finds out, she's saying, oh, if you're God, then I got to go tell somebody, because this changes everything. I've met God in flesh. I've met the Messiah here in this place. This man is not just a great prophet. He's greater than Jacob. He's greater than Elijah. He is the greatest. And church, one thing I want you to understand is the greatest loves you, Demetrius. He loves you, Pastor John. He loves you, Christina. He loves you. He cares about you. He desires to know you personally. If there's anything that should encourage us, it's that right there. Understanding that God in human flesh loves us. He cares about us. The greatness of Jesus cannot be underestimated. No one has been and ever will be like him. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died the death of a thief, and today he reigns in heaven. He's alive. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi is dead. Buddha is dead. Hitler is dead. But Jesus is alive. 
So when we come here, are we coming to mourn or are we coming to celebrate? We're coming to celebrate. The church service should not be a funeral dirge. This should be a victorious celebration of the fact that he's conquered death, we know him, and we're on the victory side. And so when we gather together, church, we've got to be excited. I'm not done, though, just so everybody knows. I'm not done. We're, we got one more point. So Jesus is greater than cultural barriers. With Jesus, you'll never thirst again. Jesus knows you and desires you to know him. Jesus is who you've been waiting for. And last, Jesus can save anyone and use anyone to spread his message. So this Samaritan adulterous woman, this reject of rejects, Samaritans didn't like her. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews didn't like women. So this, she is in the margins of society to the fullest. And yet he decides to expose himself as being Messiah, God in flesh, and as far as we have recorded, she's the first person. I mean, think about that privilege, the fact that he's exposing himself fully to the, the, the person that is considered the lowest of all. But doesn't it make sense? That's what Jesus does. He takes all of us who are jacked up, who have no reason to make the, the varsity team. We can't even make the freshman team. And he picks us and says, y'all are going to be my starting five. And we feel like we're in space and we're about to get beat by uh, whatever they are. Like, that's what he does, though. He takes, he takes the bad news bears, and, and he, sh- he does that because it shows how awesome he is. He glorifies himself by using the most unusable people. And, y'all, we get to be a part of that. Jesus can save anyone and use anyone to spread his message. She encounters Jesus, and she's emboldened to talk to the people who rejected her. Verses 39 to 42. Now many Samaritans from that time believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman... We no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Many many theologians think that in verse 40, when it says that Jesus stayed there for two days, that he probably stayed at her house. And it would make sense. It's consistent with who he was. He didn't show partiality. He didn't show favoritism. You don't read much of Jesus trying to chop it up with the king's trying to rub elbows with the, the, the upper tier of society. You see that he didn't, he didn't mind who he was with. He was, he was going to be the same person regardless of who he's with. He can use anyone to spread his message. And here's how we know that message was spread. Is verse 39 tells us that many believe because of the woman's testimony. And then verse 42, it beautifully wraps it up. We've heard for ourselves... They had each personally experienced Jesus. So God can save anyone and use anyone to spread his message. Church for us, I'll be real, I want to see West Louisville saved. I want to see folks change. I would, I would give my life to know the people in our community could come to know Christ. 
I want to see that. But for us to get there, there's some stuff we got to deal with. There's some stuff we got to be willing to do. They say that in war, if you stay in the same position for the entirety of the war, there's an 80% chance of death if you're unwilling to move. I think for us as a church, that's something we got to think about is we gather together, but, but a part of our mission as Newbury's, we also go. And so for us, if we want to not be in this, to, if we want to not just be looking at the same people for the next 5, 10, 20 years, we need to not be the frozen chosen. We need to be outside talking to people. And the beautiful thing about it, this is what I love, is that we don't need to, to size people up. I, I have a problem with this sometimes. I can look at somebody and be like, man, God could use them to do some great things. God can use anybody. That's something we got to remember. It don't matter who it is. He don't have prerequisites. Sometimes he'll even just show out just because of the fact he wants you to see how good he is. And because of that, we need to be loving everybody we come in contact with, sharing the gospel, pursuing them, walking with them. And it gets hard. You can ask. A lot of us have been doing it for a lot of years. It gets hard. You walk with people through everything from um, abuse, neglect, all sorts of issues, and you're consistently bringing the gospel with them, and, and it's getting rejected, but you're consistently loving them, it can be hard. It can take a lot out of you. But when you start to see the gospel start to take shape in their lives, you forget about all, that, all those times, all those frustrations, all the stuff you had to go through. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them heap to hell over our dead bodies. And so that's something we got to think through is that we don't know who's going to be saved and, and not everyone's going to be saved. But by golly, if anything else, let us make sure that we do our parts to make sure they know about the love of God. To make sure that we've, we've, we've explained it to them and let us weep when they reject them. Let's make sure that we make him known to as many people as possible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what your background is, no matter if you're raised in the church or you've been, you've been sinning for most of your life, Jesus can save you and use you to do great and mighty things in the world. You see, friends, all of us have the same issue as this woman. That issue is sin. Our sin is undeniable. Every one of us, I think, will, will admit that we're sinners. Romans 3.23 affirms that. But every one of us knows that we, we got sin issues. We lust, still commit acts that go against God's word. We're guilty. Our sin deserves to be punished. Jesus eventually died the death of a sinner chapters later. He lived a perfect life and died the death of a sinner so you could have the life of a perfect and free person. He died so you could spend eternity with him in heaven. If you give your life to God, you'll spend eternity with him. If not, though, well, in heaven with him. If not, though, you'll pay the debt that your sin has caused by spending eternity in hell. As I get ready to pray in just a moment, think about this woman and this great man she met. Think about the fact that, like this woman, Jesus longs for you to know him and have a relationship with him. When you go out, Think about the fact that she lived an immoral life. She was hated by the world. Yet, 
God chose to use her. And above all, remember Jesus, because that's what this is all about. He, 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 this story of him and this woman really just shows us how great he is. He's truly the greatest, and he loves and knows you, and he desires each of you to know him personally.